pray. So let's pray as we come to the words. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would humble our hearts. Lord, that you would be the focus of our hearts and of our thoughts. Lord, that you would open our ears and, and soften our hearts that we may be challenged and transformed. Lord, change and Lord, lead us in your ways, we pray. Amen. You know what the greatest problem with Christianity today is? It's Christians who haven't really surrendered or, or Christians who have forgotten what it means to surrender to Jesus. Right back in the very first message of this series when we were looking at, at the portrait of the kingdom of heaven, the blessings now we, we often know them as the Beatitudes, which is Latin for the blessings. The very first blessing was blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that, that blessed are those who recognize that spiritually their own righteousness is nothing to bring to God, that they are bankrupt spiritually, that they have nothing to offer God in terms of their own redemption. It's, it's when we're at that point that we realize that we are lost and there is nothing that we can do to save us. Only then, only then can we be saved. We're not able to fulfill the law. We've seen the, a couple of weeks ago that it was Jesus who came to fulfill the law. It's the only way that, that the, the, the righteousness of the law can be met in us. And Jesus did that so that we can engage with the heart of the law. But somewhere along the line, it seems to me the danger is greater the longer that we are Christians. We develop this sense of entitlement to the righteousness that we have. We, we forget that it's a righteousness that we haven't earned. It's a righteousness that, that we don't deserve. We forget that, that we haven't done anything to achieve or earn or deserve this righteousness that we have. And we forget that and we become entitled to it. And, and this poisons our thinking. It poisons our hearts. The result is that we begin to feel more and more entitled in our relationship with God. Like we deserve all that God has to offer. And in doing so subtly, little by little, as Christians, we begin to dethrone God in our life. We, we begin to wrestle back control. When we, when we determine in our heart on, on maybe a particular issue or topic or in a circumstance that we will not surrender that issue or topic or circumstance to God. become more proud in ourselves instead of humble. Our attitudes and our words and our actions begin to reflect the Pharisee rather than tax collector. In, in Luke, Jesus tells a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that the, the tax collector comes in and he falls to his knees prostrate before God. Says, forgive me, for I am a sinner. 
And the Pharisee comes in and he stands upright, head held high. He says, thank you, God, that I am not like this wretched sinner beside me. And when we, when we allow this subtle shift in our, in our thinking, in our hearts, when our, our salvation becomes about our glory, we become like that tax collector. When we become entitled into what God should be doing for us, when we place these expectations upon God and these conditions upon following Him, we become like that Pharisee where we need to be like the tax collector. You see, somehow along the way, we've convinced ourselves that in the universe, God has created, we are most important. It's an easy thing for us to convince ourselves of, to slide into that mindset when the Almighty God breaches the gap between heaven and earth, sacrificing His Son to save little old me. That's when we realize that it's very easy for us to think, well, aren't I important then? I must be important. But when we do that, we make salvation about me. Salvation is is something to glorify me when it's not. Salvation does not glorify me, the sinner. Salvation glorifies God in his grace and his mercy and his love. We lose sight of the fact that we are saved by grace alone. We distort the word of God and our relationship with God into something that it's not. God becomes not not just our saviour, not an intimate and personal relationship, but we instead confine God to a box that says he's he's my personal servant. We only engage with him so long as he does what we want him to and how we expect him to you know it's, it's kind of like when I look back through history in the world and I see the way that men perverted the relationships between them and their wives so rather than being partners and companions the wife was made subservient We do that with God. Does that make you a little bit uncomfortable? Does that cause a little bit of a knot to form in your heart when you realize that, hey, I've been guilty of this, taking God for granted, confining God to just a a corner of my life instead of giving him the intimacy of all of my life? You see, the, it's a slippery slope. It's, it's very subtle, the change that make. What does it mean? You know, we've got on our, our, our vision statement and our values here. We value the gospel's impact for those who don't yet know Jesus. But what is the gospel's impact? What does it mean to be saved? We, we might start by saying things like, being saved means I go to heaven. I would say, and and you'd know I'd say this, especially from the last few weeks, that that's a a poor explanation of what we're saved to. But okay, 
you know, in the raw principle, I don't disagree with that. Heaven is a relationship that we have unhindered by sin and brokenness with God. But we then say, well, heaven means that everything that I've done wrong won't count against me. And it's like, well, yes, that's true as well. But it's not a license to go and continue doing wrong and continue just to live in your own way. Being saved means will, God, God will provide everything that I need. And that's, that's true as well. And until we change what we need to be what we, we want, just these little, little subtle shifts from heaven being a relationship to a place to grace covering over my sin, to being a license to continue to sin, from, from having the needs that I have provided to being the wants and my, my desires. Then we, then we go with this expectation that God will protect me from all evil. I don't see that in the Bible. It's a nice thought. Like none of us wants to go through hard times, but if we learn anything from reading the Bible, we see that we will have hard times. You know, we look right at the very beginning of this message that we will be persecuted if we are following him. Being saved means I won't get sick, I won't be poor, I won't have any problems. Being saved means that evil people, leaders and governments won't be able to control any areas of my life. Can you see how we, we subtly and gradually begin to distort what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus? This type of thinking is indicative of a heart that says, I need to be in control. And I need to be at the center of my world. Can you see at, at its core, it's a heart that has reverted to living life my way. And using God as a tool to get my way. And Jesus has some very harsh things to say about that. So everything has to be the way that I want it. And God can, can have a piece of me, where my time, my adoration... It means uh, that if I get sick, really sick, then God is no longer good. Or if I lose the freedoms of the secular world that, is, that, that, that the secular world has promised me, then God is no longer good. If I lose my job or my house or my savings or a loved one, then God is no longer good. I'm sure you see where I'm going here. We place these expectations on God where we say, God, I will follow you. I will believe in you. I will trust in you, provided that you remain good and I define what is good. And if we've learned anything throughout this series, if we've learned anything over the last few years, it's that we don't get to define what is good. What is good is defined by who God is. The truth is, is, and the truth is, and this is the truth of the gospel, is that we are not in control. We cannot repair the damage that we've done and it's to God's glory that he is at the center of our faith, not us. He is glorified in his grace, not me. Jesus needs to be the center of our life when, when life is going well. Jesus needs to be the center, 
not the appendix, not, not some addition that we add on to the end of our life or, or, or just an addition to the life. It's like we, we want to keep on living our own way with the same priorities, the same desires, the same patterns of behavior, the same a- attitudes and habits, and then we'll add Jesus on. The gospel is not life plus Jesus. The gospel says life is Jesus. This morning, we're going to be reminded to keep Jesus at the center of our faith. And that when we wander away from it, we end up in religious hypocrisy. When we wander away from from keeping Jesus at the center, we make our faith religiously about me. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. We become God in our life. And God becomes our servant. If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're coming to the very center of Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. In the middle of this passage is the Lord's Prayer. I want you to notice a few things as we read through this. That Jesus is making a very clear point about where our focus should be, who we should be seeking approval and encouragement from, and where our true value and, and, and reward is. Notice the phrase, your Father in heaven. Jesus repeats that. Listen for that phrase. Let's have a look. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have received your you if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you do give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus starts here with giving to the needy. The point he makes is that we should not make a big show of it. We, we need to examine our hearts, examine what is the, the motivation of my giving here. Am I, am I giving because I have to? A- am I giving because I want, I want the world to see how good a Christian I am? How, how generous I am? And Jesus says, you've received your reward. And God will give you nothing. But let's not overlook something here. There there is another point that Jesus makes. And that is that care of the needy and the vulnerable is to be taken as a fundamental given. Like it's, it's not an optional extra you know, Christianity is not modular where you sort of take and, and pick and choose the little bits that you like. 
You know, Jesus doesn't, doesn't say that, and if you give to the needy, or if you give to the poor, then you get a, a special reward. It's not optional, an optional extra. It's like, no, this is to be expected that as a Christian, you should have concern for those who are weak. You should have concern for those who are vulnerable. You should have concern for those who are poor. When we fall into the trap of pride, our own image, our own reward becomes more important than God's plan. See, it's more about our recognition than what God is doing above and beyond me and my situation, me and my circumstance. You know, I've shared this many times with many people, but my, my view of heaven and I know that this is not a completely accurate view. I don't think we could ever have a completely accurate view of heaven because it's going to be so much greater than what we can imagine. But my view of heaven is like sitting around one of those little old slide projectors and God taking us through all of human history and showing us and unpacking for us the threads of His grace and His mercy his love and his salvation throughout all history. Can you imagine that? Sitting down and God unpacking your life for you in ways that you never realized to see the compound effect of, you know, that there was that person that you walked past and you didn't think that you'd paid too much attention to him, but, but it, was, it was hearing this and hearing this and hearing this or seeing that and seeing that and seeing that. All of these things built to a point where I brought you to hear the gospel and to respond and to know me. And we get to say, wow God, how amazing and incredible are you? Because we, we share our testimony and that gives glory to God. But my view of eternity, my view of heaven is that God unveils for us, unwraps for us layers of our own testimony that we never knew. And better than that, God gets to show you all the ways that your faithfulness, when for you it, it seemed to go unnoticed and unseen, all those little ways that God used that faithfulness, that obedience that was hidden from the world to make a difference for his kingdom and his glory. That, that is a reward that no money can buy. That is a reward that is so far greater than any adoration, any accolades that man can provide. For me to be in heaven and for God to lift the lid on the difference that he has made through my life in ways that I could never comprehend, I can't wait. That's the reward that is waiting for us when we keep God at the center, when we keep Jesus at the center, when we put away our pride. In verse 5, Jesus continues, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you when you pray. 
Do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Before getting to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus points out two examples here of how not to pray. Firstly, not to pray drawing attention to yourself. Prayer is not a performance. Prayer is an intimate engagement with God. It's both the opening of our hearts to express to God our our deep emotions, our fears and our anxieties, our worries, our joys, the highs and lows of God. But it's, it's also to seek God's heart. You see, in honest, authentic prayer, we, we see the best example in the Garden of Eden. With Jesus, the weight, the stress upon him in that moment, knowing what he was about to endure on the cross, he opened his heart and prayed deeply and emotionally, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But in that vulnerability, in that openness, in that intimacy, there is an equal desire to submit to God. But not my will, let yours be done. For us, the same happens. Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand what is going on in my life. I don't understand what you're trying to do. I can't see how any good could possibly come of this. Why is it taking so long, God? You ever ask those questions? Then just sit and wait. But God, not my will, let yours be done. I trust you, Lord, but I'm I'm hurting. I need a breather. I feel like I'm sinking. I'm going under. I I need your peace. I need, need your strength. I need you to show me your ways. And that's, we, we sang earlier, Jesus, lover of my soul. That's what it means when we say, I will never let you go. In that, in that moment, in the pit of despair, we cling on to God deep in prayer. The second non-example that Jesus uses is, is that of the pagans who use many words. You see, they, they felt that the more they spoke or the more eloquently they spoke, the more their God would hear them. But if we've learned anything about God as we've engaged with the gospel, as we've engaged with his word, he's not impressed by words. He's impressed by heart. It's the heart that matters. God wants us to engage with him at a heart level then he teaches how to pray this is how you should pray verse 9 our father in heaven hallowed be your name firstly we start with a recognition of who God is this serves as a reminder to us of God's authority and also where we sit in relation to God he is God he is holy he is righteous As Jesus says, hallowed, revered and respected be your name. It puts us in our place. Often, my heart has been grieved 
when I've heard Christians coming in prayer and they, they speak with a tone that perhaps they think is a tone of authority. But what resonates, but it resonates more by being authoritarian and demanding. A tone that seeks to dictate to God what is right and what he should do. Instead, Jesus shows us that we can confidently come and approach God, but with a humble heart that acknowledges his rightful place as God. And this leads us to the next point that Jesus teaches about prayer. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus of our prayers, the focus of our lives as Christians is to seek God's good and perfect will. Praying your kingdom come, your will be done is an acknowledgement that we don't have the answers. That most of the time, in fact all of the time, we cannot see things the way that God sees them. And we need most of all in every situation to find a little more of God's perspective. We won't always be able to see things God's ways. Sometimes not even remotely and other times we simply can't fully understand, we'll never fully understand what he's doing and why he's doing things the way that he is. But praying this way, your will be done, your kingdom come, is a way that we can remind ourselves to surrender our best thinking to God's plans. Trusting God that in every day, in the everyday situations is central to living life with him and that leads us on to the next section give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debtors as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their sins your Father will not forgive you your sins. Notice the connections here. The requests are threefold and each one is linked together. Firstly, daily bread. We can understand that as the basic sustenance of life. Forgiveness and temptation. But notice how forgiveness brackets. It goes either side of temptation Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. The cost of not forgiving others. That God won't forgive us. Jesus doubles down on the importance of forgiving others here. It is important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's important to forgive because God has forgiven us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There, there, there was nothing we did to deserve it, nothing we did to earn it. Christ died for us. And if we're to understand God's heart, if we're to engage with God's heart, we need to be prepared to surrender and forgive. The temptation 
that we uh, the second the second reason is because our, our, in our sinful nature we want to hold on to our hurt we want to hold on to the bitterness and the anger we want to see the people who've done wrong to us punished this is the temptation i think that we need to be wary of because when we hold on to these things instead of forgiving we're choosing not to engage with god's grace or love for someone who is sinful and broken but God's way is love. God's way is forgiveness, even when it isn't earned, even when it isn't deserved. So if we really belong to God, if we really value life God's way, something we need to surrender is our desire to not forgive. It's not always easy. It sometimes can take some wrestling with and it can take some time to process. But ultimately, it comes down to a heart attitude. Where's your heart when it comes to forgiveness? You might be wrestling or struggling with forgiving someone who has hurt you deeply and badly. And if you're honest in your heart, is there a desire, God, or no one need to forgive them? I want to forgive them, but it's hard and I'm struggling. You know, that, that's, that's a kind of desire, that's a heart attitude that says, God, I want to engage with your, your love. I want to engage with your grace, but I need your help. Alternatively, we harbor that bitterness and unforgiveness. We say, God, I'm never going to forgive them. I am never going to forgive them. How can, how can we as Christians who stand in a righteousness that is not our own, stand in the way of a sinner receiving forgiveness. If we have tasted that the Lord is good, that His grace is good, then our desire deep in our hearts, no matter how hard it is, should be that those who are also broken and sinful should know His love too. Finally, Jesus brings us to fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, some people had made fasting more about getting attention. You see that the pattern here? Their fasting wasn't about engaging more earnestly with God. It wasn't about sacrificing something within their life, within their routine, in, in order to petition God or, or to seek God's desire and God's will and God's plan. Their, their motivation was to seek approval from other people. It's like when we look right back to the story of Cain and Abel. We're not told exactly why God rejected Cain's offering. But I suspect it had to do with his heart attitude. In everything that we do, whether it be giving to the needy, whether it be praying or fasting, whether it be in our workplaces, 
We need to be doing it with Jesus at the center. Paul puts it this way in in 1 Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who, is informed, who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? And here it is. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's that's what this is all about. Now, there are so many things that we do as Christians because we think that's what we're supposed to do. We, we go through motions, we, we go through all of these things, but if our motivation is not the glory of God, is not bringing honor to God, if, if Jesus is not at the center, then don't do it. Let everything we do be for Jesus. And invite the team up. We're going to sing that song again, that new one. Be the center. It's a prayerful response. And I invite you just feel free to stay in your seats. Feel free to stand if you want. Stay in your seats and let this be for you a prayerful response. Asking Jesus again to be the center of your life, the center of your faith. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, if we're honest, we're confronted by aspects of of living out our faith that perhaps have been more about us than you. Lord, our prayer this morning is simple. Be the center. Be the center of my life. Be the center of it all. Amen.